Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. The energy transition is upon us, but what role will energy companies themselves, together with other businesses and governments, adopt in reaching net zero? Powered by How, an eight-part podcast series from Reuters Plus, in partnership with Aramco, will explore innovations and technologies aiming to move us towards a more sustainable future. Join me, Nisha Pillay, for in-depth analysis of these questions. Aramco Powered by How. Listen now. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this is episode 30, the last episode in season three of the podcast. Hard to believe. Time flies, but this has been an excellent season, and today's episode is no exception. This was a fascinating interview with an incredible musician who I know I have admired and everyone in our musical world has admired for as long as he's been out there showing us how it's done. Mr. Brian Sutton is my guest today. And this was a fascinating interview. Of course, we talked all about his history with music, what he's up to these days. But the part that really piqued my interest was our conversation about learning and advancing with music, how to get better at something, how our brains work. And he has clearly thought really deeply about these subjects and has a lot of great things to say. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that in the intro today as well. Another reason that this season has been such a success, I have some excellent sponsors on board. I'm so grateful to be working with both Artist Works and Orvis this season. I've gotten to know both of them better through the course of our work together, and I can't say enough great things about both of them. Of course, Artist Works is your go-to for online music learning. They've just got such a great platform going on, and Brian is one of their guitar instructors. So 
If you like what you hear today, you should definitely go check out his guitar school on Artist Works, and he breaks it down a little bit in the interview, but beyond just having an incredible faculty of teachers that cover a really wide range of styles, they also have their video exchange program, which everyone raves about, and it's your chance as a student to interact directly with your teacher and to get more feedback on what you've got going on specifically with your music, what challenges you're facing, what you're trying to learn. You send videos in and you get videos back with custom critique. And of course, it's all remote. So it gives students the opportunity to learn from world-class players like Brian Sutton. And you can check it out at artistworks.com. My other sponsor this season is Orvis. And as I've said over and over, I've really loved this brand from long before I was working with them. I, of course, love all the fly fishing gear. I'm an avid fly fisherman myself, and they are making some incredible stuff, most of which is made right here in the USA. But they are much bigger than just fly fishing. They really cover a wide range of outdoor needs. And another thing that I love so much about Orvis is they are a leader in the field of conservation. And if you get out to enjoy the natural world in any way, you should be thinking about how you can protect that resource. And Orvis has done some phenomenal work in this area. It's incredibly timely. It's incredibly important. And I really can't thank them enough for that. It makes me proud to be working with them. Can't recommend the gear and the brand highly enough. And through this conservation work, they have established a lot of really, really powerful partnerships with other conservation groups, two of which I'd like to give a shout out to right now that I am a member of, Trout Unlimited and the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. If you are a fly fisherman, if you are someone who cares about the outdoors, about conservation, you should check these groups out. They are also doing very, very important, very worthwhile work, and they need our support to make that work happen. All right, let's dive into it here. As I mentioned a moment ago, this interview with Brian, man, he really, he blew my mind with regard to how deeply he clearly has thought about what it takes to progress, to learn, to keep learning as you are getting better at something, which of course is challenging. And it, of course, shows in his music, but it's something that I have been really fascinated by myself for a long time. Just the concept of learning, you know, from an intellectual, more abstract standpoint, but also in a more practical, literal sense as it relates to my music and for me, most specifically, my banjo playing, which playing the banjo is not easy. I'm not going to lie to you. And it takes quite a bit of work. And again, as you progress at something, it becomes, it can become harder to progress. And so you really need to think deeply about how you're working and how you're practicing and how you're going to improve. And for me, there have been a lot of challenges along the way, and I've made some big changes to adapt, and that journey is very much a work in progress. And I'll probably talk more about my own experience sometime down the line on Inside the Musician's Brain. But in terms of like the bigger concept of how humans learn and grow, one really fascinating thing is that recent research shows that the neuroplasticity of our brains, which refers to the ability to change, adapt, learn, establish new pathways, and to keep growing as an individual, and that 
of course, is not just in your artistic pursuits or whatever you're into, just as a human being, that that process extends much later into life than previously thought. I think previously they they thought that sometime in the mid-20s that a lot of those pathways were set, and now they have figured out that that process actually extends much later into our lives than previously thought. And this is great news for all of us, right? This bodes well for anyone who wants to take up a new hobby like music or for people who want to keep progressing at their chosen craft as they get older. And I have to say, this has always been one of my favorite things about a career in music. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to essentially put all this work into something and see how far that I can take it. Even though you will hit plateaus and maybe even regress at times, it affords me the opportunity to see how deep I can get, how deep I can you know, push my relationship with music. It presents a challenge and an opportunity at the same time. And of course, adversity is always ultimately a chance for growth and learning. And I try always to sort of extrapolate the ideas that I'm confronting with music out to the rest of my life. And, and that, of course, is a valuable and worthwhile exercise as well. And even though all of this is very much a work in progress for me, I've actually been working on playing and performing a lot, especially in the last few years, coming back from the long hiatus due to COVID, working pretty deeply on physical, mental aspects and, and implementing some big changes. But again, I'll probably talk about that sometime later on the podcast. But for now, you know, there are a few very universal elements of the learning equation that Brian inspired me to dig a little bit more into and, and just kind of break down here. One thing that I have to constantly remind myself of is that growth is never linear, right? When you're working on something, you have you have ups, you have downs, and on the whole, of course, our goal is to be moving upward, but the key here is not to be too discouraged by the downward, and you know, you, you just can't let those times when you feel like your work is not adding up or you're not getting better at something in the short term, you can't let that inform you too much, and that's a great segue to another lesson that I'm definitely working on myself, which is you can't... You can't attach too much of your self-worth or your self-worth at all to whatever it is you are doing or what you are working on. And this is a tricky one, right? Because, of course, we want to sound good. You know, you, you work so hard on playing an instrument, and when it's time to play or perform, you want to do your best. But focusing on that is not necessarily going to help you get there because you're so much more than your music or whatever it is that you do. And you need to be mindful about not reinforcing the idea that your self-worth as a human being depends on how well you do something, how well you, you played last night at the gig or whatever it is. That can really lead you down a, a perilous road of reinforcing your ego too much and, and putting too much emphasis on the fear element, right? Or or thought that you are not good enough. And fear, of course, is a, is a really funny thing. Same with ego, because they definitely serve a purpose in terms of the bigger picture of our human existence. But I think this refers mostly to survival and, and safety. And we can't let fear be a significant driver in the pursuits that we take on. 
And just like everything else, it's all about practice, right? So just knowing that is not necessarily enough. We have to actually put it into action and we have to be mindful about not establishing that pathway too much. And in fact, practicing the opposite, practicing building a connection between joy and music. And if you practice that enough, if you build that pathway enough, then that will start to come up unconsciously when it's time to actually make music and it will get stronger, of course, the more you work on it. Now, another way to think about this, another way to progress in these areas of managing fear and ego and self-worth is to understand the concept of the beginner's mind. I, I love this one. There's a great book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And the basic principle is if you can always conceive of yourself as a beginner, well, then the learning curve is steeper. You have less expectation and you have more joy because when you're just starting something out, when you're new to something, oh, it's just all so fresh and you, you're you learning so quickly and you're just doing it for enjoyment. But the deeper we get into something, it's very easy to lose that. So again, it's a pathway that needs to be practiced, that needs to be built. And it's amazing how I keep saying the word practice and understanding the concept of practice is central to the concept of learning well. And this, of course, again, so much bigger than just music. And I am by no means an expert, but I have been working on it a lot in recent years, as I said. And I'm I'm coming to understand how, it, how everything fits together for me. And it, it's different for everyone. So you would need to do that same thing and, and figure out how it works for you. And I'm ultimately, I'm learning that everything is a practice. If there's something you want to accomplish, some element of your music you want to tweak, whether it's phrasing, technique, relaxation, whatever, it must be practiced and practiced well. And if we create that zone in in which we feel like we are practicing well, we're focused, we're building those pathways that we want to build, we're targeting the things that we're not good at, we, we learn the fundamentals and build those pathways of joy and positive reinforcement along the way. That's when great things happen, even if not overnight. And I would also say that in the process, everything becomes much more enjoyable. You know, practice is not necessarily a grind, even when it's challenging, because if we're doing it well, we have a sense that we are ultimately moving forward. And again, it's just like such a life lesson. You know, if we want to evolve, we have to be mindful and we have to practice. Like, for example, if you don't want to get caught up in other people's impressions of you, which is so easy to do, you just have to practice that. And every time that it comes at you is an opportunity to practice. Knowing it is not enough. And if you embrace that concept, you turn every moment of adversity into a chance for growth. And that's that's such a, a beautiful thing, a beautiful perspective on how to take on the things that we care about, how to go through life, really. And also remembering that there's no end destination. It's always a journey. And like I said earlier, that journey is not linear. And we just need to practice being okay with that and see where it takes us. One last thing about learning, practicing, improving all this interesting stuff. It's easy to think that things are much harder for you than perhaps for your peers or heroes who you look up to. But I guarantee you they face 
their own challenges, artistic or otherwise, that they have definitely put a lot of time into ironing out. And this upcoming interview with Brian Sutton is great evidence of that. Brian is, of course, an astounding musician, but no surprise, he's worked extremely hard on his craft and thought very deeply about how to improve, you know, how to improve for him, how all this stuff works for him. And he has also, as an as a teacher through Artist Works, thought about how to apply these lessons to lots of different people. And it's really inspiring to hear him talk about it and to listen to his music and observe the level to which it has paid off. Here we go. Today, we are talking to one of the premier guitar players of his time, and certainly the go-to guy in bluegrass music for many years, as well as a very thoughtful, deep thinker when it comes to music, and a great guy as well. Brian Sutton, welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So where are you talking to us from today? (laughs) We are on the uh, sort of downhill slope with the Bela Fleck uh, this version of the Bela, the Bela Fleck tour, which involves, uh, it's called the Bluegrass Happening with Sam Bush Band and Jerry Douglas Band, and of course us, and it's kind of a you know a three-ring circus of related bluegrass music. Um, and we got four more shows that uh, work us back towards Nashville. So it's uh, we're in Marietta, Ohio today. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I should mention, I saw you guys, I think I may have may have mentioned this to you previously, but when you guys played the Paramount in Denver, which was a beautiful show, and, and we're going to get to talking about your connection with Bela and and how that sort of evolved, but I wanted to say that a highlight of that show was the Overton Waltz, man. That was oh. that was spectacular, and I think Richard is running sound for you guys, yeah. uh, or at least he was, and man, the sound in the house, you could hear every note, and it was just... Uh, just an incredible performance, and I'm so glad I got to catch it because cool. obviously, Bela's making waves with this new record, "My Bluegrass Heart." It's it's such a it's such an incredible piece of music. Yeah. Um. So let's let's go back because you've had such an interesting career, and it's gone through a lot of shifts that I think have mirrored some shifts in the music industry. But your first big gig was with Ricky Skaggs, correct? Yeah, the uh, the official sort of me on stage in a big way was with the Skaggs band in uh, 1995. And how did that come about? <clears throat> well, it sort of started a lot of what my career has been about, which is balance. It started by knowing Mark Fain through early uh, versions of my career as a session player driving all over the place, Knoxville, Tennessee, up to Huntington, West Virginia, down into South Georgia, all through North Carolina and South Carolina. And Mark and I would do a lot of sessions and spend a lot of hours in cars together. And uh, he got the job with Ricky earlier that year. 
And uh, the spot came open in July. And, uh, you know, as a lot of things happen in the music business, it's, you know, you're at the forefront of somebody's thought process or radar. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's this kid, Brian. You know, he's living in Nashville now. And we've just been doing some sessions. And you ought to try him out. So it was a recommendation from Mark. Um, and, and it started from there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked out. I, I know. I remember the first time someone played me some sort of Skaggs bootleg and here comes this shredding guitar. And that was the first time I think that you came onto our radar screen. And was it after you had the Skaggs gig that you really transitioned into the session part of your career? Because, I mean, you've recorded with about everyone, Garth Brooks, Taylor Swift, Brad Paisley, Carrie Underwood, the list goes on and on. But did that element of your career evolve after you were playing with Ricky? It's certainly as the sort of bluegrass profile kind of grew for me, the session thing did as well. It kind of was, you know, sort of commensurate from that point on, sort of into the late 90s and early, certainly into the early 2000s. But the session thing was really what I was kind of about. I mean, from the time I was in high school and would, you know, watch the Nashville Network or anything on MTV when back when the people used to actually play, you know, live music in prime time. And, and it was, uh, you know, it was always, I would look at folks in the band or, or go to festivals and see Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush playing with everybody, but they also played on all these records that I had. And I was just really kind of intrigued by the idea of being able to play a lot of different kinds of music. I was uh, really kind of infatuated with the whole studio scene. I used to go hang out uh, every afternoon in high school at this local studio and got to meet all the folks working there. And was just really, again, captivated by that. And, and the thought of a life working in the studio was really, you know, that was my goal. And that's, you know, except for the Skaggs gig, I was really, you know, aiming for that hard, you know, by moving to Nashville and doing all these sessions and really trying to get my foot established there. So the point is, is that, you know, I was already, you know, seriously aiming for the session thing and really didn't want to, I'd had enough road experience where I really didn't want to be on the road all that much. You know, I always trying to avoid travel at all costs, but, but the session thing was again, just a really, uh, viable, realistic kind of goal for me. And, um, and at the time too, I mean, just, I think it's, it would be important to note, like with the Skaggs gig, it was, it was still the country band back then where I was playing fiddle and mandolin and banjo and, and singing and, and the, the whole sort of bluegrass flat picking guitar didn't really take off until, you know, he decided to go do more of this bluegrass thing with the bluegrass rules record. And we used to do shows that were half bluegrass, half country. And then it sort of all morphed into the, into the bluegrass thing. So again, part of the, just being there, being at the right, in the right place at the right time and and ready to jump in with the guitar solos or the lead guitar in his bluegrass band. That was, it was kind of all little serendipitous event uh, events, you know, again, based on me just trying to do sessions and, and what got me there in the first place was not my guitar playing, but but all this other uh, sort of utility playing that I've been doing. Sure. Now, for the uninitiated, take us inside that world of sessions. And, and we'll talk in a second about how the music industry has evolved, because I think this has really changed dramatically in recent years. But back in the day, what was it like to be a session player? A second ago, I listed all of these high-profile names that you played with. How did that all go down? And what were the challenges of being a session player? What makes someone really solid in the studio? Wow. Well, I mean, to the 
to the scene that is Nashville, Tennessee, thankfully that hasn't, with all the changes that have gone on, that hasn't changed so dramatically in the last 25 years. Meaning you show up, you have a 10 a.m. start time, give or take. Um, You have not heard any of the music that you're going to play most of the time. Um, So you show up there in the studio and there's usually a band that's represented by a drummer, bass player, keyboard, one or more electric instrument player, like a guitar or steel player or something like that. Um, And you gather and you, you know, listen to a song for the first time and then go play it. So as far as the skill set, it's being able to do that, being able to show up knowing that, you know, no matter what's going to happen, I'm going to be able to supply something that's going to, you know, uh, get a get a track down. So, you know, with a, with that goes a lot of like ego checking at the door because you're really listening, you're really, you know, involved as a as a sort of a, a throw together team here for uh, for the next, you know, however many hours or something like that. So, you know, being a team player, being quick on your feet, you know, uh, quick on your feet mentally and quick on your feet musically too. Yeah, which is you know it leads to some you know interesting decisions of what sort of has to be done now. You know, sometimes you get more time to kind of dig into something and and uh, and uh, and explore and experiment with some different ideas. It just sort of depends on the situation, but generally that ability to be you know light on your feet musically and personally is is a real sort of key. Uh, uh, skill set there and what a great practice too i mean in Mm -hmm. terms of advancing your musicianship because we all focus so much on playing and technique and you know if you're an artist writing your own stuff and sort of crafting your own sound but adapting to someone else's sound and learning music on the fly and then that added skill that you're mentioning of basically figuring out how to best fit into the music you must feel like that I mean, it seems like that probably really contributed to your growth as a musician, right? Yeah, totally, man. I've always been a fan of a lot of different styles of music and I've enjoyed trying to play jazz or, you know, uh, again, I played a lot of electric guitar for a lot of years, getting into heavy metal and a lot of, you know, whatever. And so just being aware, I mean, I'm just a fan of music. And, and again, for folks that are more familiar with me standing up playing a D28 ripping through bluegrass solos. I mean, there's many, many days in Nashville where I don't do anything close to that, but I'm more trying to sound like Bob Dylan or, or Keith Richards on the acoustic guitar or James Taylor or, you know, these sort of acoustic guitar kind of characters that I kind of keep in my uh, in my closet that come out. And a lot of the session player adaptability is like a character actor. I've used that analogy over the years where, you know, it's still me, but I have to wear this hat <laughs> that is maybe not right. my... Uh, most honest, true self as a as a bluegrass, you know, traditional musician. But for this gig and and what I've been called to do here, you know, this is my job today, and I love that. Ultimately, I don't feel like it's any way to your point, you know, degrading anything that's you know deep in my own artistry. But I do see it as as part of the picture and, and me expanding and being just really aware of of all this cool stuff that's out there. Yeah, that's so interesting and a great lesson to anyone who is listening and trying to learn an instrument, the more you push yourself outside of your comfort zone, and of course this extends beyond music, that's really when growth happens. And then assimilating those things into what ultimately becomes your style. Now, when you were at the height of the session part of your career, like how regular was that work? How many days a week, a month were you in the studio roughly? I mean, it was real common. Um, You know, it was a five day a week thing. And, um, 
you know, it, it, it ebbs and flows, but it's real common when you're doing this full time that it's a five day a week thing. Rare, rarely do, do you work on weekends, but you know, easily it's uh, you know, sessions in Nashville are these three hour blocks and you work from 10 to one and then take a break the two to five. And there's another one sometimes from six to nine and to have, you know, like five days a week of what we call triples, which is three sessions a day. That's a, that's a big week. That's fifth boat is that? Yeah. Um, 15 sessions. Man, that'll get you in shape right quick, I bet. <laughs> yeah, well, and again, to the adaptability. I mean, I'm, in, yeah. in any one day, I might play different styles of music with a different drummer, with a totally different band, different singer. And, and again, I, I really love that. I like that sort of uh, uh, just that aspect of it. I mean, just bring it on. Different sure. is good. Sure. Now, as someone who has been such a prominent session player for so many years, how have you noticed that that side of the music world has changed well you know it's at the end of the day it's it's commerce it's 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 uh it's art and product it's business <laughs> uh, it's a business and yeah. so you know which is part of the skill set too is i've got to be aware of like what uh, ed sheeran's doing on the guitar like these little parts that might show up in somebody's you know pop influenced song coming out of nashville and, you know, so the ebb and flow of just basically what's popular is something that, you know, is continually changing. But, I, you know, it's part of my, uh, again, enjoyable part of the job to stay aware of that. And, um, you know, as, as, but again, thankfully in Nashville to the, just the work of it, there are still studios where a band of humans show up and play. Uh, and, and again, to the ebb and flow of it, you know, sometimes banjos are more popular in Nashville than others. It's been really, a, you know, <laughs> a big part of the Nashville sound for a good chunk of years. But you'll see like things like fiddle doesn't get used as much. So I haven't done as many sessions with fiddle players. So you just see little, little, you know, little things like that. In a big way, though, um, there's a lot more recording from home. That was certainly something we were all happy to have during the pandemic. I kind of I love and hate it. I enjoy being able to get down in the basement and kind of just take my time and do parts and record and, and uh, all that kind of thing. But there is still, again, for especially on the acoustic guitar chair, I love playing with a lot of the drummers that I get to work with and, and just be in that pocket in real time. And um, <clears throat> But, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, as far as the biggest change, it's, it's, uh, it's that kind of thing where there's just a lot more remote kind of recording going on these days than, than ever has. So essentially you're still doing a lot of sessions, a lot of recording for other people, but what percentage would you say now do you take on at home in your own studio versus doing it live with a band in a studio yeah. in Nashville? I personally, I limit it more than some people in Nashville. So for me, I would say it's probably 20, 25% okay. uh, over a year. Um, thankfully, a lot of the producers that I tend to work with, um, you know, still would prefer to have the band in the studio it's just a better vibe it's a you get a better track it's you know you get more of that performance aspect you can hear people listening in real time versus just you know pieces and parts more of a frankenstein yeah that's an interesting topic and i think something that's pretty hotly debated is what does that do to the music you know and mm -hmm. it's a pretty it's a pretty intangible thing but it sounds like you prefer like I prefer and like I think most people prefer to be in the room playing with people, but you can still make convincing music done remotely. And and for, for people who are listening who don't exactly know what that means, you'll get a track that might be 
partially complete or everything except for the guitar and then you'll just sit down and track to what the band has already done and put your part down right yeah that's the way that works so is the is the is the idea of limiting it to 25 percent focused on the fact that you prefer to be in the studio with other musicians or is that just more a function of how you're trying to budget your time it's some of both i mean my, my preference would always be you know in the room real time um, but there's, you know, to the career aspect of it and, you know, like I've got stuff waiting for me when I get home because I've been out on the road for, you know, most of the month of June and, uh, will be for the most of July as well. So, you know, for somebody that really wants me to play on something that a lot of times is a really good out, you know, if, if they, you know, need it, you know, when, when I can get to it and they don't want to have sure. to book a studio, book a studio and an engineer and get, you know, that's like, we'll just you know, send you a, a stereo mix in a Dropbox and, you know, have your way with it and send it back. And, and again, it, it's one of those things where I'm thankful to have been around long enough where producers trust me in my instinct to, you know, to put something down that, uh, you know, I would think would work. And, and sometimes it ends up in a little back and forth. It's like, there's not quite, you know, not quite what we're looking for. Can you run it again? And, you know, it's, it's but it's, it's very doable. It's, yeah. you know, we, we, in a lot of ways, you, you end up with something that's, you know, for a casual music listener, they would never know the difference. Right. Now, you mentioned the effect that remote recording has had on the whole world of sessions and making albums in Nashville. But how has the streaming era influenced all of this? You know, we've mm. seen a, a pretty seismic shift in the music world and it influences pretty heavily, as you said, it's a business and it influences pretty heavily the resources that are available on the front end, how much music makes on the back end. What totally. do you notice in terms of how that's affected the session world and how music was traditionally crafted in Nashville? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was real common years ago to be booked for a week to do the whole, to do the record. You just, they've got the songs prepared. Mm -hmm. We get a band together, we knock out the record in, in a week, and, we're, and then we move on. And now with streaming, and it kind of even started back with, like, um, you know, just iTunes and, and any kind of digital marketplace, uh, as it were, where it became much more like the 1950s, more of a single space kind of thing, where instead of having a whole record planned, it was... Uh, let's let's just put a single out let's go record three songs and that the best one we'll put out and we'll see how it tracks we'll see how it sells what do people respond to and you know through that kind of uh <laughs> throwing the hook in the water and seeing what bites kind of mentality then that leads to you know going back to the rest of the record so a lot of a lot of the projects like major records that i work on actually happen now over three or four months in maybe one to two day little chunks versus one big you know kind of record push uh which is you know good and bad sometimes you know as a as a career session guy you're like well i need to get to this first session so i don't miss all the rest of them um and that's hard for a guy like me that's balancing some other things but uh but that's the main thing as far as just you know how how the how the time is spent and again how the money is spent to your point and you know with things streaming the way they do like records as a complete product aren't as valuable anymore as potentially one big single in the right playlist on Spotify. And so there's a lot more, uh, you know, risk associated with one song versus like, you know, let's just see what happens with this whole record. We will get right back to my interview with Brian Sutton after this very short break. 
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is the rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. So interesting. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to observe the way that all of that has changed. And and yet, we're still making music. We're still making albums. You know, there. I think there is a focus, I know, in our world Touring has become a disproportionate part of how we we make our living, and and sure. we'd love to see a little bit more balance. And I do think those things go in cycles, but but that's um, that's really fascinating to see, you know, how how your career has sort of evolved around some of those changes. And then we kind of get to the early two thousands, and it seems like this is when you start making your mark as an artist a little more. And I know that that call from Bela to be a part of the Bluegrass Sessions tour was was a part of that, correct? Well, yeah, again, sort of what I realized with the Skaggs gig was that, I mean, I have an opportunity to get back into playing some Bluegrass and I realized that I was, you know, on a, on a national stage with a big name artist and, and uh, you know, had Barry Poss over at Sugar Hill said, why don't you, you ever think about making a record? and and so, yeah, sure, this sounds fun. And um, that kind of initiated this idea of like, okay, I, I mean, maybe people would want to hear something that I would do. What is it that I do? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was a, a lot of those things kind of working at the same time where uh, having opportunity to make a record, trying to figure out what that would be in the first place and continuing even after the Skaggs gig to have opportunities with either Baylor or Jerry Douglas or Tim O'Brien or eventually Hot Rise where I was able to sort of, without being a soloist, uh, you know, find myself consistently, you know, on bigger stages and bigger festivals and things like that and maintaining a certain kind of profile within the world of bluegrass and and, and making records seemed like a, a smart uh, and an enjoyable way to again sort of pursue my own artistry or just you know just keep something out there that um, you know and really you know to the point of being a session player uh, a major thought that I had was you know I end up playing everybody else's songs and I don't really do a lot under my own steam so having the records was you know really my solo career and a chance to kind of stretch myself and do songs or, or you know get into certain kinds of kinds of writing or kinds of music styles that people wouldn't hear on most of the records that I was playing on. So it was a real opportunity, again, to, to kind of ultimately just to, yes, pursue a certain kind of artistry. And then hanging around guys like Bela, Jerry, Tim, certainly, you know, stretched me musically in, in a, real, a lot of real positive ways that would end up showing up on these records, too. Now, I mentioned the Bluegrass Sessions tour, which the tour that you're on right now is 
like the third installment of Tales from the Acoustic Planet. And I know those Tales from the Acoustic Planet Volume 1 was the album that really hooked me on banjo in general. And then I sort mm-hmm. of got into the flectones and that pushed me toward bluegrass. But this intersection of that generation of players, Bela, Sam, Jerry, and of course, Tony Rice was their guy. And, mm-hmm. and then you get the call to essentially fill in for Tony on the Bluegrass Sessions Tour. What was that like? It was weird. I mean, it was literally Jerry Douglas saying, hey, what are you doing next week? <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. And so, yeah, here we go. And I wrote a bunch of charts, and, you know, really kind of dove into the record. I'd, I don't know that I'd listened to it a ton before then. Um, I mean, maybe it wasn't even out for that long. But anyway, the point is, is that, uh, you know, I made a little notebook full of charts and got on the plane and, and here we go. I mean, it was just one of these, it was a very, very much a whirlwind thing. I hadn't really been around Bela that much till we showed up on the bus that night at the airport in Sacramento and took off. So, you know, it was, it was kind of a sink or swim thing, but I think again, sort of that session, session player ability to like, okay, here we go. I can, I can change. I can go do this now. Um, and bring it on. You know, I was, I was ready for it, you know? Yeah. Well, those are some big shoes to fill, needless to say. Well, yeah, and then you get into the other side of, you know, like <laughs> imposter syndrome or, you know, am I supposed to copy Tony? Um, and I've never wanted to do that, you know, as a guitar player in the world of bluegrass. And he wouldn't have wanted that either. We, you know, we, he and I had conversations about that. And, uh, but anyway, the point is, is that, uh, that led, you know, another sort of interesting wing of my career is between the bluegrass sessions or any kind of like Tony's not here, so here's Brian. Also, Charles Sotel has passed away, so here's Hot Rise with Brian. And so there's been a lot of this, you know, from like 2000, as you mentioned, forward, where it was like, yeah, I'm trying to kind of, you know, plant my own ground here, but I'm also doing this, <laughs> uh, you know, in place of some other legendary figure sure. and these, these layers of, okay, kid, what are you going to do to, you know, uh, to make your mark or prove your worth or something like that. So, you know, there were some, some interesting sort of psychological dives in, in that scene. Well, you mentioned Hot Rise and Sawtell, and it, it speaks to your versatility, filling in for Tony and filling in for Sawtell, because these are two guys who occupy, in my mind, two very different places, the music yeah. equally convincing, but really coming at it from, from a different place. And Tony, obviously, we, we lost pretty recently, and mm-hmm. I watched that amazing thing that you put together on Facebook, which, which was, was so cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, and, thank you. And, and you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Tony Rice and and how much you got to hang with him, play with him, because he was such a monumental figure in bluegrass. And it's it's interesting. I mean, of course, I do think he got a lot of appreciation in his time, but you know, he didn't really play much music toward the tail end of his career. And then at the very end, no music at all. And then he's gone. And I don't think I've ever seen an outpouring of support and love for an artist. And just so evident the larger than life effect mm. that he had on our music. So when did you first meet Tony Rice and and just tell us a little bit about your relationship with him and your impression of his music and the legacy that he left behind? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, 
the studio that I mentioned where I used to go hang out after, uh, you know, my junior and senior year of high school, uh, he started hanging out there too, and, and they would hire him to produce some records or to play on some things. It was over there in Asheville, North Carolina, and he would drive down from Reedsville. So my first kind of hang with him was, you know, in kind of a casual, comfortable studio. It wasn't backstage at a festival or anything like that so much. I mean, I had my picture made with him when I was 16, but but to actually talk to him and kind of, again, sit around with a cup of coffee, it was at this studio. And then, you know, again, from the Skaggs gig, we were around, you know, at Merlefest and the other, others, uh, other, other places together. And it was just kind of a collective of smaller little uh, instances that sort of grew into more of a specific relationship where, we, again, we knew each other and were able to talk about a lot of the same things. And, and again, this is, you know, now, you know, as my career progressed and, and continued to be around him sort of early 2000s into the mid, you know, mid to th- first 10 years of the 2000s through 2005, six, where I would see him pretty regularly and I would call him on the phone sometimes and we'd talk. Um, I remember, you know, at that studio, you know, and this is later years where we would still be doing some work there, just hanging out in his car, listening to <laughs> Earl Clue, and uh, just sort of badgering him with one question or another, trying not to be too fanboy about it, but just, you know, you try to get some things figured out. And uh, But he was just always a really nice guy. He seemed incredibly free with his time and his thoughts about music. Uh, I never felt like he, he was intimidated or it felt like any kind of competition from me. And I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't bringing that anyway. So, but he was just, it was always, he was always very, very kind and very, you know, very giving with what he had uh, sure. to share with, to share with anybody like me. And then that was true from, you know, from the first day to the last time I was around him. Um, those are the, that's the main thing I remember about him is just how, just how, yeah, again, how open and kind he was and how agreeable he was with whatever we were doing. We ended up doing a couple of duet gigs together. and Yeah, he just wanted it to be agreeable and musical and fun. And that was a good lesson, you know, from your guitar hero that it wasn't about him, you know, going into some deep technical thing. It was just like, what's the spirit of this? You know, what's the most, what's the most enjoyable time we can have making music? And and it's very free and it's very, you know, non-judgmental. And those are just, those are beautiful things to, to experience with your specific guitar hero. You know, those are the right lessons. That's so interesting. That's really, that's really amazing. And I know a lot of this obviously because Critter and I, Chris Eldridge from Punch Brothers mm-hmm. have been close friends for years and he got some, some time with Tony, you know, a little bit later on when I think he wasn't as available necessarily to younger pickers and, Critter always talked about how he was such a deep listener and appreciator of music. And I feel like the way that that extends into, you know, his sort of interpretation about how music should be created and played. Um, and it's, and I'm hearing the same thing from you. He was just someone who was gracious and almost like just tried to see the uplifting, almost fun side of music. It sounds like. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's again, you could get deep with him on one thing or another. I remember one of the last conversations I had talking about upstrokes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it, it could go there. But again, it was, 
you know, the, the musical moment was, was really free uh, with him in, in, in just such a beautiful way, as powerful and as kind of commanding as his, like his bluegrass rhythm guitar could be. It was, it was all, all in the dance and the bounce of it, you know, yeah. it was the, the, the feeling versus like, here's exactly what we're going to do. It's, it's, you know, to even get him to talk about rhythm guitar, he wouldn't do it because it was always so reactive for him. And that was an interesting lesson, to, uh, like a specific guitar lesson where bluegrass rhythm players think sometimes you just got to really put it, at, you put it there, you know, and you, you command it. But really, he was as reactive as he was proactive as a rhythm player, which is such a cool thing. So you mean, whereas some rhythm players almost look at it like I'm laying down this rhythm, you're sort of playing along to what I'm doing. Tony's approach to it was like, that's a give and take between everyone who's playing at a given time. Yeah, more of an ensemble form where yeah. I'm I am a part of this and I'm going to support you and you're going to support me and we're going to kind of share the ball like a good basketball team and and uh again versus this sort of heavy-handed sort of approach and, and good drummers are that way too where and uh you know they're not trying to establish some kind of uh baseline fundamental that that people just sort of play with or against you know it's it's a it's a team team sport ultimately, and uh, and again to you know to backing up a little bit even to sort of the finding any kind of common ground between Tony Rice and Charles Hotel is that it's also very song centric, which is another thing that I've always you know gleaned from the session world is like the the song and the people playing the song that moment that it, as you learn to listen deeply to that that helps define a lot of what your role is. You know, and that effort that you make to get out of your own way, um, I feel like that's you know part of what I get from Tony and all these guys that I that I sort of pay attention to in that deeper listening kind of ensemble form. Yeah, and Charles is such an interesting sort of look at the other side of the spectrum where he seems to embody a lot of those same principles. You know, it's about the song, it's about the ensemble, it's about being reactive. But he was working with a very different toolbox than say Tony Rice but he still made this amazing convincing music that that we all love totally and again I think you know with, with, with the hot rise chemistry specifically you know with the songwriting of Tim O'Brien and just you know when you think about hot rise you can think about each individual but but I, I think for the legacy that that band sort of uh, enjoys in the world of bluegrass it's those songs it's it's the uh, you know the the entertainment aspect with Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers, and just this again, just just as vital. But like, like you say, it's kind of a different angle, a different different path to the same same kind of goal. Well, I know that 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 Bluegrass Sessions tour, which sort of was the advent of this this conversation and and all this stuff about Tony, which is so awesome. I mean, we we can't spend enough time remembering him or talking about the influence that he's had because his music was just so incredible. And he was also this amazingly versatile player. You know, I remember listening to a lot of his stuff and, you know, instead of, and of course, like the early Grisman albums, you know, there's so much crazy hot picking, but then Streets of London was was the one that we had on repeat. And and it's like, wow, the artistry is just, it's just so deep. And, and it's cool because I hear that in what you do too. And I, I mentioned, you know, Overton Waltz, which is like this one really just beautiful, toneful, artistic side. That's, it's not, you know, banging you over the, the head with, with hot <laughs> licks, but, but, you know, there's that too. I, I remember, you know, we were mentioning your solo albums and then as things evolve, you know, you start putting out albums under your own name. And I, I'll never forget when Critter brought Ready to Go 
into, <laughs> into the mix. And we, we, we listened to the, I think it's called Decision at Glady Fork. Sure. so awesome but but you know we we appreciate what you do for a lot of the same reasons that we're talking about appreciating charles and tony you know there's so much to it and um and clearly you are a really thoughtful guy and and i wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about artist works and some of the way that you approach improving as a musician i know that i i've listened to uh, one or, or there's a podcast that you did for artist works and and I was really, I was really moved by that, and and just impressed because you know sometimes you hear people crank out this amazing music, and you're never quite sure how much work goes into it, or you tend to compare them to yourselves, and you think, oh God, I you know I need to work so much harder than these other people. But you have clearly really put the work in, and and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. So first off, Artist Works has been a, a pretty big part of your career in recent years. And I should mention they've been a sponsor of Inside the Musician's Brain this season, and they've been so awesome to work with. Tell us a little bit about the platform and how it's been for you taking the step to becoming a teacher. Um, well, the, the podcast-worthy, slightly long story is that I grew up with teachers. My mother is a real passionate uh, uh, teacher, uh, reader, just sort of hungry for knowledge and and my dad is too just real smart people and i feel like i'm just as i grew up in a musical household i grew up in a household of teachers and, and have paid attention certainly in more recent years of of what teaching is is really all about when it comes to opportunities that i have and so at the at the, at the heart of it I, I really do feel kind of uh inclined to teach. I feel like I want to do it. I feel like I, I am, well, I know, I don't feel like I know that I enjoy it. I, there's a, there's something intriguing about it. Just like trying to figure out, you know, a cool chord voicing or something like that. Just, just how can I say the things I want to say to a student that really is impactful? You know, what, how can I get better at it basically? And th those are things that are kind of seeds that were planted even back in early days of me doing little workshops or camps and things like that. Just knowing that, man, this can be better that I know this, this, this part of it works, but this part of it doesn't. So I've just always kind of tweaking the, you know, the, the personal little system there, if you want to call it that, or just whatever it is that was important to me that I felt like I wanted to share with people because I knew that, folks have been really open with me, people like Tony Rice and people like some of the, the session players that I'd been around. Um, I felt like if I had opportunities in my career, it was because people taught me. And there was that side of it too, of, of feeling inclined and, and kind of responsible to pass that along in some way. Uh, there's the, uh, you know, the just the specific uh, experiences that I had, like early in the Skaggs days where Again, I'd, I'd been a pretty good kid player, but there was things that I needed to experience and learn, especially on the mechanics and technique side of my playing, 
that encourage more longevity versus tension and and and, uh, and pain and <laughs> and a misuse of myself. I mean, in, in learning more about tension as I play or perform and what performance anxiety is as it relates to my own personal experience and tension and things like that, which gets into a hugely deep end. But what my point here is that, you know, that presented itself as a lane for me because that was those were huge lessons that I had um, later in life, along with a bunch of other guitar lessons, you know, more sort of rudimentary guitar exploration and learning. But anyway, the, the point is, is that 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 led me to this point of like, okay, here's something that I can talk about, and I want to do this. And so, Artist Works as an opportunity came along about eleven, going on twelve years ago now, and was a relatively new thing. And I was kind of impressed with the whole. Uh, the whole platform of here's a curriculum online that people can work on, but the real guts of the site are any student can send a video of themselves working on whatever it is in the curriculum and uh, all are welcome. It's not exclusive to a certain level of player. Uh, but the point is, is that I, I respond to the others, artists, works, teachers respond to those videos. And so you get kind of two different things. You get this curriculum and all these sort of just canned lessons about one thing or another, but then you get this ever-growing, what they call this video exchange library. Yeah. And I'm up to like over 10,000 now. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, 10 years worth of, of little conversations. And, and that's, you know, the point of all that is that that's the virtual master class, you know, the, the master class where uh, an instructor's on a stage or in front of a group of people working with a student in front of, the, in front of that group that's the, the classic master class format. And this is sort of a virtual version of that, which yeah. is, I've always been a fan of that as far as group teaching. And, uh, I, so, you know, I, I tend to fall in line with the concept of it and the, and the, the general sort of mission of what artist works is. And, and it's turned into, again, for me, enjoying a, an outlet for my own teaching. It's been, it's been great. I mean, I really yeah. do love it. It's, it's hard to, it's uh, hard to balance sometimes when you're on the road or got a full session slate or there's a holiday or vacation, uh, because it's an, it's an internet thing. And as you know, with a podcast and you know, it's just, there's, you always got to do another one <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we're doing it right so, now. Yeah. But it's been, it's been lovely. I, and I, and I yeah. really enjoyed the last 10 plus years of, of again, trying to refine my teaching craft and, and, it's been been a, a lovely part of it. I've totally enjoyed it. That's great. And I know the response has been great. And it's it's so awesome to have musicians like yourself who are available to share all of this knowledge. Because like I said, you, you've really put the work in. And it's pretty endless, obviously. And learning, of course, is so much a function of mm-hmm. where the individual is at and assessing, you know, how can I help this person get better? But one thing I would love to chat about just for a second is what you mentioned a moment ago, because I, I've heard you speak a little bit about this, and I do think that there are some great lessons in here that you can sort of extrapolate out to the rest of life. But this idea of playing without tension, because bluegrass is so heavy on technique, and I know that I have definitely gone through periods of my career, and I'm sure everyone at all levels of the game experience at some point you know, hitting the ceiling. And so much of what happens at that moment, I think, is we tense up and we want to learn how to play faster or learn this thing that we can't play. So, you know, how, in a nutshell, how do you approach that that block, that part of the learning process? And, and how do you, you know, sort of move through that and get to a point where you're playing with less tension and then sort of unlocking more of what you can do? Yeah. Uh, the first steps, I think, Chris, are 
understanding kind of your own version of this. That's part of, especially when it comes to instrument technique where you're, you see somebody do something and I'll do it that way. But I think all of us, just like you see different golf swings and baseball pitching and whatever it is, you know, if you see 20 different high level uh, practitioners, you're going to see that many subtle differences in, in the basic same technique. So the sure. point is, is that I believe that everybody can find the best version of themselves. And a lot of those, a lot of the debris that gets in the way comes from, oh, Tony Rice moved his thumb joint like this. So that must be what you're supposed to do. Or all this sort of more postural stuff where this guy stands this way or this, she, you know, she holds her pick this way. So I'm going to do that too. And those are all well-meaning things. But part of, again, my role as a teacher is to try to help people discover more what the best version of themselves can feel like and sound like when they play. And when you learn, I think, to sort of uh, define everything based on more of like a, a fuller, more open, natural range of motion, for instance, like, you know, to get real specific when you're, when gravity is the main force on like your picking hand wrist, what that actually does is create this perfect natural balance in your ability to rotate and hinge through your forearm, wrist and hand. And there are so many guitar players that in that effort to play faster or play louder, you use tension to clamp down on the guitar. And so you're actually going the opposite way. And sure. that's a real, that, that's the other side of this sort of self-discovery along with your own personal version of what your tension feels like, because I can't feel it, um, but we can all hear it. And so you learn to associate these physical experiences with more positive musical, sonic, groove-based kind of experiences. Because when it's more efficient, you can do it longer. When it's more efficient, you're, you're more aware of that ceiling and you can actually do things in the midst of your playing you know, I, I use a lot of this sort of one to 10 kind of recognition of, you know, low tension to high tension, one to 10. And, you know, with any kind of instrument, any kind of physical activity, tension is, or, or relaxing is not removing tension altogether, but it's always about balance. So the ultimate goal with all, within all this is to help understand what sustained, maintained balance can feel like in your play. And then you also, again, on the other side of that and the experience of it, deal with, okay, what is this person standing on the side of the stage? It makes me nervous and I tighten up and now am I, I forget to breathe. And, you know, there's the whole other mental side of it too. And now so, what, you know. Yeah, I'm go sorry. ahead. Well, I just say trying to, try, trying to get to the nutshell of it. It's, there's a lot of self-discovery and a lot of understanding that a lot of this stuff is natural, but we don't, we don't engage in that immediately. So it's, it's learning to kind of accept and trust that, um, that this can work. This there. This is an option. We don't have to do the normal human uh, fight or flight kind of reactions. Where again, when it comes to playing faster, I see this so many times where people actually play faster than they need to because of all the pushing. Or mm. on the mental side, when you're playing to not make mistakes, you're trying to play for perfect. You're actually creating mistakes. You're you're trying to avoid. So those lessons, those lessons, and like, oh wow, I don't have to work as hard. Are hard to learn at first because it's against your a lot of times your well-meaning nature. But the, but that's the specific learning that goes on. Now, what about in bluegrass? What what about practicing slow versus practicing fast? And mm. what's the utility? Do you think of practicing slow? Like, I, I guess another way to ask that question is if we're trying to teach ourselves how to be relaxed, because I, I know you know people say or they hear someone say, "Oh, you got to be relaxed to play fast." But knowing that is not enough. You actually sure. have to train yourself. So what, what's your take on practicing slow and practicing fast and how to get that all to feed into being someone who, who plays efficiently and is relaxed? Well, the two terms you're using are, are relaxed and slow. And 
to the relaxed part, what I've learned for myself and what I try to include in all my teaching is that when you can define for yourself exactly what relaxed feels like and sounds like, meaning when we move on an instrument, we hear something. Our motion is our sound. The qualities of the motion are the qualities of the sound. You, you always can hear tension. That's a cool thing about it <laughs> in the learning process. And to the point of practicing slow, it makes sense. My version of that is, is really what is musical and manageable. Where if you're, if you're going through a class with me, we discuss what musical is when it comes to toneful and tone qualities and note qualities where notes are long and connected, um, where there is a certain way to kind of engage in a fundamental use of mechanics that's more informed by groove than it is about some kind of conscious doing and, 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 uh, and, and use of yourself. Where because rhythm is our vehicle to travel through a song, how can I incorporate these qualities of travel that are predictable and trustworthy and continuous, the, the, at least within the guitar playing, like rhythm guitar playing, like clapping is a continuous action. So the singular motion of down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, in a balanced, continuous way will yield, again, this is all easier said than done, but, but that will yield a nicer tone. And so the point of slow is at what tempo do you feel like you can notice this? Because again, a lot of this when it comes to the self-discovery is you coming to terms with, with your own version of what, uh, of what your technique feels like and what feels manageable, what feels musical based on these sort of agreed upon terms. And, and I have a lot of people, even with just one streaming, uh, you know, eighth note kind of little exercise, you can, it's not a song, but you can hear these elements within the engine of your playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, to the, uh, to reiterate the slow point, it's not about just going down to this incredibly laborious, uh, uh, hyper-focused slowness, but it is a musical, it is groove-based, it is tonal, but it's, it's at a tempo that feels manageable, meaning it's one thing to kind of create something, it's another thing to sustain that something. So there's a tempo where you feel more sustainable about this, and that's where the real, to me, the real experiential and learning part of it comes into play, where it's like, I can hear this, I know that I'm doing it, I can trust this, or I can at least now associate that to some other challenges. And these all sound like different shades of the bigger lesson, which is you have to understand yourself and your own mm-hmm. version of relaxed and sort of what you're capable of and, and how to get in that groove and then work up from there, which is, it's just a great lesson and so interesting. What about the performance mindset thing? Because again, another thing that I've heard you talk about, but how, how does someone work on, how does someone advance in the area of performing because there's music and then there's performing and there's so many great analogies. Like you mentioned a few sports analogies, which resonate with me. You know, they say a million guys can play golf like Tiger Woods, but they can't do it on Sunday in front of the cameras. So how do you, you know, how, how do you help someone move toward being a more proficient performer? Well, you do definitely get into the psychology and, and sports psychology is, is a great place to, to jump into because, you know, you, you do see that on a regular basis. Um, musical performance psychology, there's a lot of resources out there, more and more. Um, but ultimately for me, uh, this this whole inner game concept um, has been a really big one for me to, and the, and the crux of it is you understand that, you know, in your, in your uh, conscious awareness 
as you're performing, there's this oftentimes this what they call self one, this very loud voice that's telling you that this is working or this is not working. Or, you know, Chris Pandolfi's standing on the side of the stage and, and you better not mess up and, and or you tell your ride and there's, you know, a hundred people in front of you that are your peers and and you know, all this stuff. You know, it's that loud voice in your head that's that that usually not very positive play-by-play announcer. And then there's this other self too, which is really that more capable person, that capable version of you. It's more unconscious. It's the part of you that actually feels like in practice, yeah, I can do this. But then when I get in front of people, it kind of falls apart. That's because we, we tend to listen to that self one because it's louder and the inner game helps you sort of reckon with that and kind of give self one some other things to focus on, uh, different strategies of uh, attentional focus, uh, which to me in that performance moment are really, really valuable. It's specific strategies that I can use that, again, give that self one like some loud yapping dog in the corner gives it a chew toy. And then I can, <laughs> I can, I can notice, be, just be aware of this other more capable part of me and play. Now that's not easily done. Again, it's, it's a practice. It's a, it's a good days and bad days kind of experience. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. But that's been the main thing for me. And then beyond that, there's a lot of, again, I think what helps most people, what has helped me is coming to terms also with my own tendencies with anxieties or fears or how I view mistakes. Uh, What does a mistake do to the rest of my show? You know, a lot of, again, to the self-discovery point, accepting, you know, that, you know, I need to work on all this stuff. Um, Mindfulness, self-compassion. Uh, all that stuff, I think, is, is a really valuable first step for anybody that wants to break through some of those hurdles uh, because they're real. And performance anxiety is not just, oh, I can't go out on stage. I'm going to go jump in a chair and, and, and run away from it. Performance anxiety, like for me, is a lot of adrenaline. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's a heart rate. It's learning to breathe deeply and, and lower the heart rate. Um, it has something to do sometimes with who's on stage with me and how, you know, Bela just played a great solo, so I've got to beat that or I've got to play something just as good. You know, these these momentary expectational kind of things that, again, if I focus too much on that, it's 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 not helpful at all. So um, now, do you feel like do you feel like that's something that the performance side of things? Sorry to cut you off there, but I'm, I'm as it relates to what you just said, is that something that you can work on away from the stage or is that something that you really hone through performances for me it's always happened on stage i feel like it's it's funny to share that with people like but most of the time when you're seeing me on stage you're seeing me kind of in performance practice um not all the time but 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 a lot of times and i think part of you know the challenge for me is to just allow it on occasion just okay just go and play music (laughs) because that's ultimately what we're we're, we're trying to do is not be so so in our head um, again, I've got some. I feel like I've got good strategies that help me when I'm struggling for one way, one thing or another. But uh, at the end of the day, too, I'm, I'm also challenging myself to just enjoy this. That's you know, for me, that's been a big one recently with performance pressures or performance practice. Is like, man, just look at this opportunity that yeah. you have. This is joyful. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. Is there another example of like you just mentioned that you have strategies that you use to quiet the critical voice, like? What are some examples of that? Um, a big one for me is is what Intergame call or at least the Intergame of music they call it engaging as the listener, and I do this in the studio a lot. Where I basically pretend I create imagery where, like, I'm sitting on the other side of the glass, listening to me coming out of the speakers. 
um, if I'm on stage, especially like singing is a relatively new thing for me. So a lot of times I try to engage not so much as the doer of the thing, but the listener of the thing. Mm. There's these strange dualities that you can start thinking about where, I mean, the notes wouldn't happen if I didn't create them. So I'm driving, but I'm also being driven the same way when you drive a car, you are, you are making that car go forward, but you're really responding in real time to all this feedback. And when you learn to see that balance in a musical state or a performance state, and that's what engaging as the listener kind of in, in, encourages is that you get outside of yourself and try to pay attention to the bigger picture. What is your role in this ensemble really doing? You know, what is a listener hearing? Um, we use that down in like small little parts of, you know, some of the mechanics things that I teach of like just learning to listen to yourself. Um, so that's a big one for me. Like even in that performance real time, paying attention to what a listener would hear, imagining what a listener would hear. Other, other types of imagery um, are really helpful for me as well as far as the physical side and, you know, as far as physical tension where, again, that one to ten kind of assessment where if I'm dealing with tension, I ask myself, what does this song sound like when it's this lovely sweet spot of a four versus, you know, falling into the trap and playing too hard, you know, at an eight or a nine? Uh, you know, and a lot of that, again, is, is more uh, focusing attention away from the internal doing and more on something external. That's another great kind of realm of a lot of uh, exciting neuroscience these days of focal attention and, and how, you know, within motor skills, especially like learning to focus attention more externally, even while you are doing something. It's a challenge, basically focusing on the effect of something versus the cause. Uh, so interesting. Do you feel like yeah. it, that you'll have times where you're on stage and you feel like you're technically inhibited for a lack of a better term or inducing tension and that you have a way to kind of 180 out of that during a performance? Yeah. And that's part of the strategy too, is, is just, again, accepting that you can do that. I don't have to be a victim of my tension. Um, if I, I mean, to your point of what you said earlier, kind of hitting that, that ceiling or whatever, if, if I can see tension more as maintenance and balance versus all on or all off, then, you know, just as a surfer riding a wave and, you know, you know, the balancing issue comes in where I'm, I'm not hard and planted and forcing, but I'm light on my feet and kind of reactive and I, and I can be more acutely aware of small little adjustments that, that need to be made to kind of keep myself in balance. And I do that a lot, you know, here in this, in this Bela Fleck show, it's a long show. It's two and a half hours of, of a lot of complex music, really fast kind of stuff and, um, long solos. Uh, and so I do a lot of that, a lot of, you know, just trying to get out of my own way and just, and just notice the balance that can happen, uh, when I don't force it, that, that tends, that's another inner game strategy of recognizing where allowing turns into forcing, um, and again, the more you practice this stuff, the more acutely aware you are aware of, again, nuanced versions of it to where attention is, again, not all just all on or all off. Yeah, that's so interesting. Last question about this. I'm so curious. What, yeah. what is like the half hour before you go on stage look like for you? For, for example, for one of these Bela shows, when you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're locked and loaded, it's, it's almost showtime, you're getting warmed up, you're getting focused, you're getting your brain engaged. What does that look like for you? Uh, depending on how I'm feeling any given day, there's usually a lot of good deep breathing to kind of feel like again the heart rate is kind of staying nice and maintained. We're honestly at a point with this. I've been playing this music now almost a year, 
and it's in a good, nice, unconscious place to where there's not so much about, oh, I hope I remember the bridge on Our Little Secret tonight. Um, so there's a little less of that, uh, but I do. It's a tricky to, bridge. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, and I will say, you know, also with this music, too, even as, after, as I played it at a year, there's still, and I know the stuff, I still have to focus pretty hard yeah. on where I am. And, you know, as soon as I look up, sometimes I'll get, you know, something will happen. Oh, I forgot that chord. Um, anyway, um, it sort of depends on the day. You know, there's so much about, as you know, traveling. It's just, just every day uh, on a personal health side can feel different, you know, as far as sleep, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a cup of green tea about half hour before just to kind of wake, actually wake me up a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and that's, it's usually just trying, yeah, that half hour is, is where I kind of gauge that stuff. I do try to make it a, a habit to, to do the whole, get the clothes on early. I like to sit with the guitar a little more, Uh, and kind of warm up. I'm at a point in my life and career and playing wise where I I just need a little more time. So there's some, you know, just some good time spent with the instrument. I like to walk out on stage feeling like I'm ready to go and warmed up. And and is that a, is that a consistent thing that you do to warm up? Like I'm talking specifically about the guitar. Do you do the same thing every night? Uh, I have things that I do. I've got some classical pieces that really do a good job working my yeah. fret hand and arm up. And I've got some stretches that I'll do, depending on how I feel. If I feel tight, if I've carried luggage around all day, you know, there's some forearm stretching and kind of self-massage of hands and, and wrists and things like that that, that that sort of feel like they open me up. Um, and again, every day is going to be slightly different with that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, but, but I know to kind of, at least around that time, I'll check in with myself and see what I'm doing. And sometimes there'll be more heavy playing we've been in a little more of a, of a zone the last few shows of kind of gathering up about half hour before and just running some traditional bluegrass just to kind of you know blow it out a little bit and then you walk on stage and play this you know uh more intricate kind of thoughtful stuff and that that feels good yeah well if this isn't an endorsement for all you guitar players for brian's artist work school i don't know what is man this is this <laughs> is all so so interesting and i i know that you have to make your way to the rest of a busy day and a Bayless show. But man, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. This has been so informative and awesome. Well, thank you, Chris. I really love talking about this stuff and uh, more about that stuff than me, but it's, it's, <laughs> I, I'm just such a fan. I'm an, and again, a continued student of, uh, of everything we're talking about. And I appreciate you providing a, a platform for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone, like I said, check out Brian on Artist Works. He has a bunch of amazing solo albums and, of course, is featured on a million incredible records that are out there. And uh, great to see you guys at Telluride. The set was awesome, and I look forward to crossing paths again soon. Brian Sutton, thank you so much, man. Thanks, Chris. Wow. Brian Sutton, everybody. That was so cool. So interesting. I know I certainly learned a ton, as I did from all the guests on season three of Inside the Musician's Brain, and that's a wrap on season three. I'm planning to take a few months off, work on some music, work on all the things that you don't have time to work on when you are cranking out podcasts, but I love it, and I can't thank you all enough for listening. Please head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. You cannot believe how much it helps. I want to say a huge thank you to my sponsors this season, Artistworks, your go-to for online music learning, and Orvis, your go-to for all your outdoor needs. And I want to say a huge thank you to all the guests this season, Aoife O'Donovan, the String Dusters, Nate Hiltz from the Dead South, Green Sky Bluegrass, Bela Fleck, 
Karina Reichman, Corey Wong, Maggie Rose, Madison Cunningham, and of course, Brian Sutton. It's truly an honor for me to sit down and learn from and get to know these amazing guests better as we do these interviews. And of course, none of this happens without them. So huge thanks to all my guests and huge thanks also to Osiris Media and Americana Vibes for helping me make it happen. I'm not exactly sure when I'll be back on the air with new episodes. I do have some very exciting ideas that I'm already cooking up for season four, but I promise you that it won't be too long before we go back inside the musician's brain. Osiris. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.